Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are indeed pleased and honored to have with us Master Historian Jeremy Black. And today we are discussing his one of his new books, A Brief History of Germany, published by Robinson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor what one may call or say are the origins of the Germans, German lands, etc.? Well, I tried to discuss that in the book, and as I made it clear, um, there is no absolute narrative that one can follow. One can look, for example, at the very plastic way in which Germanness has been considered over the years, uh, not least as well as those within, and as you use the term, the German lands, the present German lands, for example, and we're not talking about the uh, result of population movements at the end of World War II, but the present German lands would include Austria and um, the German-speaking Swiss cantons. So one has got a considerable diversity. And to think in terms, for example, of the divi- simply of the division of Charlemagne's empire, or inheritance, I should say, um, doesn't really take you very far, because that included in the eastern, uh, what becomes the uh, eastern uh, kingdom, um, that includes part of what we're talking about, but is not coterminous with it. Now, how important uh, to the future of the German lands or the German people, whatever term one wishes to employ, uh, was the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest in, uh, what was it, 9 AD? Yep, 9 AD. Um, well, just to remind listeners, this was um, a movement of Roman troops, three legions under Varus. It was part of the forward movement of the uh, frontier of the Roman lands from the Rhine um, to the Elbe. We're talking about the reign of the Emperor Augustus. And um, this was a battle in which these three legions uh, famously lost and was followed by a retrenching of the frontier on back to the Rhine, uh, which then remained, um, in essence, the frontier throughout the period of the Roman Empire. Um, but that is both the significance in terms of the period, and we'll come to that in a second, but it's also worth bearing in mind, as you know, and as I discuss in the book, the way in which that battle and its memorialization was to be important to subsequent narratives of Germanness, whether one's thinking of Ulrich von Huten, um, uh, Luther's ally, who wrote a, a book about um, um, Arminius, the uh, or Hermann, or whatever term you wish to use, uh, the leader of the uh, the German peoples or the tribes uh, fighting Varus who defeated them, um, or whether you wish to think about 18th century usage, usage uh, Klopstock wrote about. 
um, uh, the same character or early 19th century or late 19th century usage. And there again, a whole host of figures come to mind, including the uh, creation of a monument, which you can still see from the railway. Go and see it closer. I saw it from the railway, in fact, um, uh, to, to the, uh, to the victor. So it becomes subsequently part of a narrative of German heroism, German identity, essentially um, developed against Romanitas, and Romanitas can serve um, for uh, proto-Reformation or Reformation anti-Papalism. It can serve in the uh, 18th century for a kind of idea of an enlightened Germany, which isn't tied down by a sort of reactionary Italianate papacy, or it can turn in the 19th century for narratives of Protestantism, Protestant nationality, and Germanness accordingly. Um, I think it's fair to say that those later narratives, of course, would have surprised the uh, the protagonists in AD 9. We don't actually know what they were thinking, um, uh, as with the Caledonians at Mons Grapius, who Tacitus wrote about, uh, and then was that that account was then used by Gibbon. What we know is what outsiders, in fact, opponents had to say. But one can assume that what one is talking about is a process that was similar to that seen in Gaul during uh, Julius Caesar's conquests, with Arminius being the equivalent of Vercingetorix. And again, for Vercingetorix, the narrative we have is Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Um, and this is a kind of attempt by tribes to link with other tribes against an outsider. Now, um, one has to be careful at discussing how far this links to a proto-nationalism. I mean, you're speaking to me from America. Of course, the same argument was used, uh, has been used about some of the Native American peoples in the early 18-teens um, opposing expansion of the infant republic. But it's also worth pointing out that not all of those tribes uh, did actually oppose the expansion of the infant republic. And as in, for example, the case of the Romans in Britannia um, in the 40s and 50s AD, uh, you get some tribes actually, uh, and some tribal leaders, actually aligning with the Romans. And I think it's reasonable to say the same process would have occurred um, in what subsequently was to be called Germany. And my last point would be that if you think of lands outside Romanitas as constituting the core area of, of a sort of Germania, which is the line that's been taken by at least one other, one other historian recently who's written a popular book. Um, I think it, you do really need to discuss the extent to which many German cities, Trier, Cologne, for example, Regensburg, their origins are in fact Roman, that the Romans ran uh, the Mosul, uh, they ran uh, much of the Rhineland, um, they ran, uh, including all of the uh, left bank Rhineland, uh, they ran the area south of the Danube and up to about 100 kilometers north of the Danube as the Roman Limes, and Roman Limes or walls also stretched from the upper Danube to the upper uh, to the Upper Rhine. So the idea here is, I think, not terribly helpful uh, because a large part of uh, what we would call Germany was part of the Roman Empire. Ditto, of course, if one's even more so if one's talking about Austria. Now, to go back to something you mentioned uh, earlier, 
um, how important uh, to the future of the German lands, or the, if you like, the German people, was the Carolingian Empire and its subsequent uh, break into three parts? Well, I certainly think you're right, Charles, in talking about its division. Um, I think that's very important. I mean, listeners will remember that the uh, Carolingian Empire, its capital, its headquarters, uh, the uh, uh, the place of burial as well, is Aachen, Aix-la-Chapelle, which, of course, is a German city, though most people don't tend to know very much about it and haven't visited it. It's actually an impressive city with impressive Romanesque architecture. Um, had the Carolingian Empire been sustained, and we can debate whether that's possible and that's a counterfactual, but of course, uh, empires of great geographical span did exist in that period. Uh, one can think of Byzantium, one can think of the Abbasid Empire based in Baghdad, let alone others further east. Had it been sustained, then I think it's fair to say that the identity of what we call Germany would have been the eastern marshes, to use a term of the period, or border provinces of this Carolingian Empire. And much of the energy of this Carolingian Empire would presumably have been deployed uh, fighting um, pagans, uh, particularly uh, Vikings and they come along, but also fighting the, the infidel, if you like, whatever term you wish to use for uh, for Islam, which was present in um, Spain, which pressed on the southern French coast, which was present in the Italian lands, and also competing with Byzantium. Now, in practical terms, Germany becoming detached meant, and the imperial um, uh, the imperial crown being part of that detachment, which was not inevitable, of course, what that does was mean that Germany or the German monarchy or whatever you want to call it retains a very close commitment to intervention in uh, the Italian lands for a whole host of reasons, not least the position of the papacy there, but does not maintain this interest in the lands that we are to call France. So I think partly it's a question of how the empire changes, but partly it's to be the geopolitical and cultural uh, legacy for what becomes Germany. Now, to ask a old chestnut of a historical question, why did not medieval Germany fail to become a sort of proto-nation-state a la England and France? Well, again, that's a fascinating question. And like a lot of these historical chestnuts, it's well, <laughs> it's well worth taking out and thinking about it because it is an important case. It's worth bearing in mind that if you're looking at what we call France or England in, shall we say, the mid-15th century, you wouldn't exactly be describing them as necessarily success stories and contrasting the empire with or Germany, if you wish to call it that, as a failure. I mean, if you think of France, I mean, if you go, um, we'll leave aside the chaos of the Hundred Years' War, um, even after the Hundred Years' War has ended during Louis XI's reign, you've still got what's it called? I think it's the War of the Public Wheel against quite a number of the nobles. You've got the conflicts with Burgundy. It's by no means clear that France is going to emerge strongly. And you could make exactly and precisely the same points about England in the, uh, you know, it's lost. I mean, to use a later phrase, it's lost an empire in the case of, uh, obviously, the lands in France. 
and it's then got drifted into civil war. Um, so I'm not sure one would necessarily see Germany as a failure. And you could take this a stage further and say that in the late 15th century, the very end of the 15th century, with innovations in terms of the development of the imperial circles, which, as I discuss in the book, are are areas of the German princely uh, dominions where uh, troops are to be raised for um, for the purpose of creating a common uh, imperial army to fight against outsiders. Uh, there's innovations as well in terms of jurisdictional uh, organization and financial organization. I'm not sure that you would necessarily see the German lands as a failure. I think where the situation changes is with the Reformation, because the Reformation um, creates a religious political conflict in the British Isles, it collect, creates it in France, it creates it obviously in uh, elsewhere, I mean, in, uh, Poland, for example. But in the case of Germany, there is not a resolution in terms of a government which is able to move beyond um, uh, religio-political leagues. Now, you might say that an element of that was still present in the France of the Edict of Nantes in 1598 with um, uh, the French Protestants retaining um, a political and military role. But, of course, French Protestantism is to be crushed militarily in the 1620s. I mean, I know the Huguenots aren't, uh, don't lose their rights or whatever term you wish to use for them in, until 1685, but it's the 1620s that they're crushed. And you might argue, if you wanted to be interesting, and you know, I think comparative history is very interesting, that it's the 1620s that sees a divide. Because in the 1620s, you get a comparable process in the Habsburg hereditary lands, the crushing of the uh, Protestant nobility in Bohemia, so that's analogous to the situation in France, and an increase in imperial authority um, in, the, uh, in the empire. But at the end of the 20s, that is put into reverse, 1629, 1630, 1631, 1632. There is a reversal uh, and chaos in part to do with the French-inspired Swedish invasion, which comes in in 1630, in part to do with the dismantling of part of the imperial army under pressure from the German princes. You know, there are a whole host of reasons. Whereas there isn't the comparable dismantling in France. But then again... You can take that a stage further and say, and I think here David Parrott's work is excellent, that the protracted political and military crisis of the Fronde in France at the end of the 1640s, beginning of the 1650s, shows that the French achievement is itself precarious. Uh, what caused the Thirty Years' War and what were the long-term effects on the German lands and the German people of the same? I think the Thirty Years' War is, there was nothing inevitable about it. There had been short wars as a result of religious differences linked into princely rivalries. There'd been one in the Rhineland in the 1580s over Cologne. There'd been one between 1609 and 1614 over the Ulysburg clave inheritance. There's nothing inevitable. 
Uh, what I think is rather the case is that what was quite a specific challenge to the authority of the Habsburgs in Bohemia spirals into a bigger struggle because uh, Ferdinand II creates a league, uh, including in particular the Elector of Saxony. He's containable, he's Lutheran, incidentally, but Maximilian of Bavaria and the Spaniards, who use this as an opportunity to displace the Protestant claimant in the Bohemia, um, Frederick V, Count, Palatinate, Count of the Palatinate, Count Palatine, um, and uh, Bavaria gets the upper Palatinate and um, Spain, in a sense, takes over militarily the lower Palatinate. And that spills into Germany a conflict that otherwise could probably have been restricted to the Habsburg hereditary lands. Nevertheless, it's not the Thirty Years' War at that stage. We're still only, I mean, we, you generally start the Thirty Years' War in 1618. We're still only in 1622 at that stage. Um, what then happens is, of course, uh, Protestants try and Protestant leagues, Protestant rulers try and resist the increase um, in Catholic power uh, and imperial power in Germany. And they're encouraged by a broadening out of other power political struggles, the uh, resumption of war between the Dutch and the Spaniards in 1621, uh, war between the Swedes, Protestant and the Poles, Catholic in the 1620s as well. And this then becomes an opportunity once the Habsburgs are doing well for their opponents to try and look for uh, people that would come in against the Habsburgs. So initially, the key player is Christian IV of Denmark, but he's defeated at Leuter in 1626 and leaves the war in 1629. And after that, the French, key player being Cardinal Richelieu, who in effect is directing French foreign policy, helped to mediate peace between the Poles and the Swedes and then help to persuade Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden to invade um, what we would call Germany or the empire in 1630. And I would say from then on, you've got a struggle which really is not containable by the German rulers. So in 1635, Peace of Prague between Saxony and the Habsburgs, the German war is largely brought to an end in the sense of the war between the German princes. Um, and at that stage, I think I'm right in saying that only Hessen Castle among the, Pro the Protestants is still, is still holds out. Um, but... Uh, by that stage, you have, um, as it were, the presence on what we might call German soil, to use an emotive later term, uh, of uh, foreign troops, particularly Swedes, and it becomes their war. You know, Swedes and French who come into the war formally in 1635 and the Habsburgs. Um, uh, so then you've got a different Thirty Years' War as part of an international conflict. What was the nature of the so-called absolutism in the German lands in the uh, 18th century? Um, well, it's part of what we could call the post-Westphalian settlement. You asked me last time about, and I forgot to answer, and I apologize, the consequences of the Thirty Years' War. And the consequences of the Thirty Years' War, of course, is um, the Habsburgs in the imperial position um, directing through influence and a degree of power, an empire where there is essentially self-governing princes. 
able to follow their own foreign policy. And I think one can take that through the late 17th and 18th centuries. There are different political configurations, in part as a result of external challenges. So the challenges from the um, uh, the Ottoman Turks in the late uh, 17th century encourage a lot of German princes, including Protestant princes, to serve um, uh, you know, in the middle Danube against the Turks alongside the Austrians. There is also a commonality in the 1670s and 1690s of most, though not all, of the German princes against the French. But at other times, there's suspicion of the Habsburgs. There's a lot of suspicion of the Habsburgs, of Charles VI in the 17-teens and even more 1720s. So there are these tensions there. And the, and the Bavarians in the early 18th century and the Prussians uh, in the mid-18th century tend to take an anti-Austrian stance. Um, as far as the internal governance is concerned, I think it's fair to say that absolutism has to be understood, as I've tried to argue in a number of my books, like my History of Europe in the 18th century, not as autocracy, um, but rather as a rule under God, as they would have seen it, and in accordance with the imperial constitution and with the inherited privileges of subjects, in which the ruler, nevertheless, is the key player politically and governmentally, and, and generally in terms of religion as well. And that would not have struck contemporaries as despotic. The trouble is we use the term absolutist as if it's a description of despotism. They had a clear idea of despotism. Despotism was how they imaged, not act accurately in many senses, but how they imaged rule by the Ottoman Sultan and by non-Christian powers. And it was rule in which there was no cognizance of the law or any individual rights or privileges. Uh, they saw themselves as different to that. Now, how important was both short-term and long-term to the German lands was the French Revolution and the subsequent Napoleonic uh, series of wars? Well, in the um, long term, I'd say very important. I mean, apart from anything else, the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars were disastrous for France. Demographically, although other factors have play a role, its population became less numerous than that of Germany. Uh, it was left with a situation in which much of Western Europe was suspicious of it and Central Europe. And it was left with, uh, more specifically, Prussian power established in the Rhineland in formerly Catholic areas like Trier and Cologne um, in order to prevent French expansionism. So I think, uh, uh, and also, of course, it ensured that notions of, French, of German nationalism, of proto-nationalism, were organized around an anti-French narrative. So I would say it was very important. But again, going harking back to what I've already been trying to argue, there was an enormous amount of contingency about this. After all, German princely states did cooperate with the French, some of them consistently uh, much of the time. We're thinking there places like Baden, Württemberg, Saxony, Bavaria. So that's a lot of uh, Germany. And others 
uh, which had started off fighting the French, then went to peace. I mean, Prussia might subsequently see itself as the clarion call of German nationalism, but it left the war against um, France in 1795. It had started it in 92, leaves it in 95, doesn't start fighting again until 1806, leaves in 1807, famously cooperates with the invasion of Russia, and doesn't re-enter war against France till 1813. Um, and I think it's worth saying that Napoleon's position was accepted by, uh, not particularly pleasantly, they didn't like it much, but accepted by most of those in Germany who wielded political authority up to 1813. And it is the Russian success and then the Russian movement of troops westward, so the Russians were determined not just to inflict a defensive victory against the French, but then to to move westwards, that is absolutely crucial. And then Napoleon botches it. I mean, Napoleon messes up the campaign of 1813, and he also messes up the opportunity to keep Austria on his side. Um, so there is nothing inevitable in the short term about what becomes the long-term uh, construction of German nationality in part around an anti-French narrative. Why wasn't the Holy Roman Empire uh, reestablished circa 1814-1815 as part of the Vienna Congress settlement? Well, that's, again, a really interesting question. Of course, it's always rather hard to explain why something doesn't happen. I think it's fair to say that the... Um, it was regarded by most as anachronistic, and in part, the movement towards the um, the new confederation represents the capacity of ancien regime societies uh, to, as it were, reform themselves and create new institutions. So the old system had very much focused on traditionalism, ecclesiastical principalities had been tremendously important to them. There'd been roughly about 360 principalities. Now, principalities in all. Now, the situation after 1814 is a very far fewer principalities, you've got rid of the ecclesiastical states, you've got rid of the elected uh, imperial system that had pertained um, under the First Reich, the Empire, and in a way, what one sees now is a more instrumental and transactional conservatism, which I think describes more generally the conservatism of the 18-teens and 20s. Why, in the famous words of Alan Taylor, did German history fail to turn in 1848? Well, Taylor was considering um, the, uh, as it were, the liberal revolution and why the liberal revolution did not create a kind of um, state which had the potential to be a sort of middle-class, tolerant, uh, liberal state. Well, we could all sympathize with those values. I think most listeners will sympathize with those values. But it's bluntly worth pointing out that even if it had turned in 1848, it wouldn't necessarily have been sustained. After all, a second republic is created in France in 1848, and within five years it's become the third of the, let's get it right, so let's get it right. Let me second. It's the Second Republic, and it's become the Second Empire within five years. Napoleon III has transmuted himself from president to uh, to uh, to emperor. So I don't think necessarily 
that Taylor was being realistic. I mean, he was a great man for aphorisms, um, but I think that the um, the a lot of the uh, as one sees with the Frankfurt Parliament and its transactions, a lot of there, there was a de- degree of naivety. I think it's fair to say, and a degree of naivety in what was a highly unstable society political system, I mean, uh, society of nations, in which one needed to be able to display, to display more agreement, cohesion, strength and purpose than the Frankfurt Liberals proved able to do. Why did the Klein-Deutsch uh, solution to the issue of German unity uh, triumph over the Gross-Deutsch Right. Well, for the benefit of listeners, the Klein-Deutsch one is the one in which you construct Germanness round Prussia and you leave Austria out and the Austrian, whatever lands you would construe as being part of Austria. And the Gross-Deutsch one is the latter solution, the Habsburg one. And I think, I mean, you put your finger on it. Uh, 1866 sees the Austro-Prussian War. Again, there is nothing inevitable. Koenigsbrat, Sandoval, whatever term you wish to use for it, could have gone a different direction. Um, It didn't have to uh, lead to the outcome, as you know. And as I discuss, um, many of the German states deployed troops who were willing to fight for their vision of a Germanness which was not run by Prussia. So you're thinking there about states like Hanover, Hessen, Kassel, Bavaria. We're not talking about tiny states. A lot of Germany did not wish to throw in its weight with the Prussian solution. But once the Prussian solution had triumphed, the alternative view becomes that of exiles, like the King of Hanover going off in exile in Vienna, um, and everybody else feels they have to cooperate. How do you evaluate Bismarck as a statesman? Would you agree with Alan Taylor that he's probably the greatest statesman in the 19th century? Well, he was certainly success, highly successful. Whether that's great or not, I'm not sure. It's very difficult to know quite how one measures these things. Um, I mean, it's a good advantage if you're going to be a, a statesman to come in on the side which has a good army, uh, uh, abundant uh, natural resources which they did in the coal and iron in the uh, you know in the Ruhr and the uh, uh, the industrial capacity there and by the end of your period in office the largest industry in Europe Uh, so that's not a bad hand to play but he also plays it well Um, and of course his reputation is enhanced by the fact that he was succeeded by uh, ministers who were less effective under a monarch or an emperor, I should say, Wilhelm II, who was particularly useless. Um, I think uh, Bismarck is very good. I'm not sure I would necessarily straight out say he was the best in Europe in the 19th century. I mean, there are other people we could look at. We could look at Cavour. We could look at Guizzo. You know, there are other people we could look at in terms of their skill at playing their hand. Lord Liverpool in England, for Britain, I, for example. But he is very, very successful. And if we wish to measure greatness by success, yes, he achieves it. Why did Germany lose the Great War? Well, you know, Charles, we've discussed that, and I've written a book about it. Um, uh, the Germany loses the Great War because it is beaten on the battlefield. And the uh, attempt by... Um, uh, 
apologists, revisionists, to argue there was a stab in the back. That's rubbish. And the modern equivalent of arguing there was a stab in the back, which is the, as it were, the left-wing approach, which is to say what happens on the battlefield doesn't count. It was really popular reaction against uh, the uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the imperial system. Uh, popular action in part also provoked by the Allied blockade does not address the question that the German army, having been, you know, very effective um, in 1917, at the beginning of 1918, is defeated decisively on its main, main battlefront by its opponents. Why did the Weimar Republic fail, or, um, additionally, why did Hitler come to power? Well, again, I mean, you know, I would, I would urge people to read my book where I've tried to argue this at some length, so any answer here would be uh, short-term. There are factors general to the period, which is the crisis for democratic systems posed by um, the, as it were, a limited bedding down of um, democracy and also by the economic and fiscal strains of uh, relating to the Great Depression. But having said that, there were also specific factors in case of what happened in Germany. I've discussed those in my book, and I think it is fair to say that multi-party systems, and it's ironic that in uh, many countries there are, you know, people um, extol uh, proportional representation, which tends to in fact help create this instability. Multi-party systems do involve negotiations to create coalitions that can then be used uh, opportunely by um, by individuals to push themselves or their political grouping to power, or they can be deployed by others in the hope that that will happen to to the benefit of an unexpected to unexpected benefits, and that's really what happens in Germany. There was no inevitability about Hitler coming to power. Yes, he was popular with a lot of Germans. A very large number of Germans supported him. It's you know the, the Nazism was not a minority or marginal. Uh, convictional belief by the early 1930s, whatever it had been in the mid-1920s. But there was a big leap from that to getting to power. Um, and I think it's worth bearing in mind that there is really no equivalent in Germany to the ineffect, uh, however hamstrung it was, coup that takes uh, Mussolini to power over the march on Rome in Italy, or indeed the real coup that had taken the Bolsheviks to power in um, in the what becomes the Soviet Union. The Bolsheviks, who were a genuinely unpopular and small movement, use violence, large-scale violence, from the outset. The Nazis are able to exploit, who are a vicious and unpleasant political movement quite willing to use violence but they are able to exploit the political system to come to power without any equivalent need to stage a coup how do we evaluate the the complicity for lack of a better word of uh, average german in the crimes of the hitlerian regime well i've discussed this a book in uh, quite a lot in my book on the holocaust um 
And those people who are interested, I would urge them to read that because I think I've gone through both what happened, but also the subsequent controversies like the Goldhagen one. Um, Well, you know, one doesn't wish to be harsh. There were some Germans who acted in an honourable fashion with concern for the human dignity and rights both of other Germans and of non-Germans. But I think it would be fair to say that... um, Uh, most Germans knew exactly what was going on. They were aware that there was large-scale anti-Semitic violence. Um, They were, you know, the notion you get in so many textbooks, you know, you know, the Nazis committed atrocities in other in other uh, countries. This is rubbish. It was German troops that did a lot of it. And you didn't have to be a member of the Nazi party in order to murder civilians, unfortunately. So yes, I would see a high level of complicity. Why did Germany lose the Second World War? It was outfought. That's rather... That's rather... Well, Charles, you know I've written, I've written, what is it, about four books, five books on World War II? I, I believe I mean, five books. I, I believe five books, too. Um, uh, but I usually underrate myself. Um, I've argued that, again, it was primarily military failure that is responsible. And I have argued it was outfought. So I don't accept the argument that it was outresourced. I know... Distinguished historians have argued that, that it was essentially a war of the factories. My view is that having uh, masses of military munitions can be advantageous, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a particular result. I think Germany is outfought. And I think it is, there is, I mean, technically, if you want my view, there is a capability gap to the German benefit. And indeed, I'd say the same, I have said the same to the Japanese in the early stage of the war. That capability gap is closed. I would argue it's closed in 43. Um, And I think what you then see is the outfighting of German units in 44, um, and the you know pretty quick end of the war as a result of that. How do you explain Germany's successful turn post-1945 in a liberal democratic direction? Well, it's nice of you to think of East Germany as being liberal and democratic. I actually researched there, did research there in 1918. It certainly wasn't my experience that East Germany was liberal and democratic. I was very clear, clearly in a rather unpleasant police state. I take it you mean West Germany. Yes, and, fair point. Uh, yeah, my but, but my erotum. No, 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 but I think we should leave that in. I hope you don't cut it out, because the point I would make is that when most people think about Germany after 1945, they think about West Germany. It's important to remember that there was also East Germany. Now, as far as West Germany is concerned, first of all, I think they had been, they may not always have fought in these lines, but they had benign occupying powers. Those benign occupying powers transferred Um, power and authority very rapidly to the new West German government and allowed it to practice its um, economic policies uh, very quickly. They also provided it um, with a military umbrella, which meant that although the the West Germans created the Bundeswehr 
and obviously conscription and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, their defence was at a relatively low cost, certainly compared to what had happened under the Third Reich, for heaven's sake. Um, so, first of all, it's in a benign situation. They may not have thought that being on the front row of the, uh, the Cold War, but it was in a benign situation. Second of all, the fundamentals of the West German economy were strong, both in agriculture and in industry. Thirdly, the West German social welfare model was not as um, archaic as that of many other countries. Fourthly, they didn't have, or they, well, shall we say, they were able to move beyond uh, debilitating trade unions, which were an enormous problem for Britain in particular, but also France. Um, and the left in West Germany did not play the destructive role it played in both uh, Britain and France in terms of national prosperity. There were right-wing um, revisionists, but they were kept uh, in their box. Um, they, you know, they got uh, votes, but they were kept in their box. Um, so that you have essentially a pro-business right-of-centre government, which is able first to use the dynamism than the inherent dynamism, and then to benefit from the expansion of what in effect becomes a free trade area with the European Economic Community. And all of that is to the enormous economic benefit of, of West Germany. Now, you are to get subsequent criticism um, from the next generation on, but much of that about what their parents had done and the focus on economic uh, prosperity at the expense of everything else, much of that uh, criticism was just naive. Uh, what explains the marginalization of the extreme right post-1945? Was it the fact that uh, with the collapse of the Hitlerian regime, a extreme right solution or discourse was fundamentally uh, illegitimate? Well, that's one thing, though it's worth bearing in mind. I've got in my book the statistics. Quite a few people voted for far-right parties in the um, late, uh, you know, in the, in the 1950s. Um, and in part, these were organized around um, the, so the all-German bloc, the League of Expellees, wins 5.9% in 1953. Uh, it wins 4.6% in 1957. It goes down to 2.7% in 1961. Well, you can look at that different ways. You could say 5% roughly is 1 in 20 voters. That's not a lot. Or you could say, well, actually, this is rather surprising in the aftermath of the, of the Third Reich. And you could also talk about some uh, fairly conservative people voting for the CSU or the CDU, the uh, the more mainstream right-wing parties. Um, and obviously some of them drifted over and voted for the left. Um, I mean, what I would say is that the discrediting plays an enormous role, but the key role is the fact that prosperity has been delivered. I think that's very important. Unemployment is very low. Prosperity has been delivered. I should imagine also, though you would have to ask an anthropologist about this, that the killing of a lot of young men probably does tend to stabilise society. Hmm. Didn't know. Didn't. I was not familiar with that particular uh, concept or thesis. But now that I think about it, there's certain logic to it. How would you uh, evaluate contemporary Germany? Well, um, 
obviously there's two separate things to say that what there's one there's one's own experience which is limited because although i go to germany a fair amount there's only so many germans you meet um and there is what one reads about it and thinks about it so there are two different ways on the first case and my personal experience of germans is that the majority i meet are civil civilized um interested interesting possibly a bit duller than one would expect if one was taking part in a conversation um with people in some other countries in europe um uh, but and and sometimes in the past um you know you could you could be surprised at what they said historically but then one could say the same in every country including my own and indeed yours uh, what i would say about germany as a whole um is that the present crisis um in europe uh, linked to ukraine has drawn attention to the question about whether the germans are as it were um so interested in their own fu- good fortune future contentious issues so you know things like um uh whether they should or shouldn't have nuclear power um whether they should or shouldn't run the european union essentially to their fiscal benefit and so on and so forth um or whether they have a broader sense of a international interest that moves against at terms their own self-interest now i think you could say the same thing about most countries you could say the same thing about france and if anything um uh, france is behaving in a far more bizarre fashion in the ukraine crisis than germany is so i have no intention of making critical remarks about germany here all i want to observe is that in writing a history of germany one is very mindful of the fact that uh, the situation at the moment certainly domestically may look reasonably clement for uh, germany but you know when i was last there i was in saxony and you can go to beautiful areas in saxony the saxon alps for example um but you know one is also aware of the large numbers of people in in former area of thuringia or whatever saxony whatever you want to call it who um uh, vote for far-right parties so i think that there are there are different ways that you can look at things um and you know i don't wish to be accused of being politically partisan on the left there is a fair amount of naivety and in some cases rank stupidity as well um so i i think that the there are areas in which you could be sanguine um i've been going to germany since um the mid 1960s uh, there are areas that you can be sanguine about developments but i think you can also draw attention to respects in which germany is a all too normal of the problems affecting societies as a whole and b uh, has some specific problems of governance built into not so much its history but built into for example the tensions between um the lands and the, that's the provinces and the federal government the extent to which germany rather like the united states in some respects the united states is a 
is a continent pretending to be a country, by which I mean that, you know, Alabama is not the same as Wisconsin, but you have with a federal system to make sense of that. So there is a degree to which that's true of Germany. But Germany, because it's smaller, less populous, uh, seems to be making a greater success of federalism than most other federal states and societies. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.